now we're at the point that we're going to talk about what's going on when your DK is resolving, but your patient is still acidotic. This happens, not infrequently. So we fixed the vent, we fixed everything we can fix, we managed to correct the potassium, we started the insulin. You're now at the point where your patient has been on insulin for 12 hours or so. They've gotten eight liters of IV fluid, they were really volume down. You recheck some labs. This is what they look like. Okay, you look at your labs, you call medicine, and you say, DKA is all better. They can go to the floor. Medicine is like, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? They're still really azidotic. Their bicarb is 11. That's not so good. Why am I saying the DKA is resolved? They're still acidotic. Why am I saying the DKA is resolved? What's the anion gap? Their anion gap is closed. It's better, right? So at this point, by definition, your DKA is resolved. But we still have a pretty profound metabolic acidosis. As a quick exercise, glance at that APG. Is this patient compensated respiratory-wise for their metabolic acidosis? Yes, no, three seconds, glance at it. Yes, they are, right? See how easy that was? CO2 is 20, last two digits of the pH are 19, little bit of wiggle room, beautiful, so easy. But yeah, why is the bicarb 11? Why do they still have this metabolic acidosis? This happens a lot. Which one of those numbers in the labs is giving you a clue? There's one number here that makes you think, ah, yeah, that's probably doing it. What is it? It's the chloride, right? This is problem number one, hyperchloremia. We probably gave that patient eight liters of normal saline. Now their chloride is 129. We will talk in a minute about why hyperchloremia gives you a non-gap acidosis, but there's something else going on. There's another reason that this patient has a acidosis still. When I was a resident, um, I was at all of you, and I took care of a lot of DKA patients. It's like sort of all you do, all day, DKA. And I would get really frustrated because I eventually figured out that I probably shouldn't give my patients eight liters of normal saline because then their chloride would be a million and then they would be really acidotic. I figured that out while I was a resident. I stopped doing that. I switched my IV fluids. I was all proud of myself. But still, but still, even so, they would still be really acidotic. And I could not figure out what was going on and it drove me crazy. I finally figured it out when I'm a fellow because there is something else going on and it's something you're actually more likely to see in young healthy patients who have good renal function. Here's what it is. Your second problem is urine loss of potential bicarb. This is how this works. When your DKA is resolving, what is happening is your keto acids are getting metabolized and that's regenerating sodium bicarb. So when you have DKA, what happens is your bicarb buffers your keto acid. You generate a sodium salt, the keto acid. Okay. As your DKA is resolving, this is what happens. You start metabolizing your keto acid and then that regenerates 
one millimole of sodium bicarb for every one millimole of keto acid that you've now metabolized. And this is a good thing. This is a happy thing. We're regenerating our sodium bicarb. What happens if the patient has a really high urine output? As often they do, right? Because you just gave them eight liters of IV fluid. And if they have young, healthy kidneys, they're going to start peeing like crazy. Well, here's the problem. It turns out that you can pee out the keto acids as salts in the urine. And so if you start doing that, you have a really high urine output and you start excreting all of those lovely, nice keto acids in the urine, wait a minute, you can't regenerate your sodium bicarb anymore. You can't regenerate your sodium bicarb anymore and that's why we say we lost potential bicarb. And this is the other reason that your patient now has a non-GAP acidosis. Because rather than using those metabolized keto acids to regenerate our sodium bicarb, we just lost them in the urine. Now this is interesting, because now we're at a point that giving bicarb wouldn't be a crazy thing to do. Now you don't have to at all. If you just leave the patient alone and wait long enough, their acidosis will get better. You don't have to do anything about this. but. If you're in a situation where, for some reason, the acidosis is a problem, let's say that maybe the patient's not intubated, they're having trouble keeping up. Let's say that maybe they need to go to the operating room, or you're having problems with your pressors not working because they're so acidotic. Okay, in that case, giving sodium bicarb is a totally reasonable thing to do here because you're not trying to correct a gap acidosis with it. That makes no sense. But to say, I'm going to correct a loss of potential bicarb by giving bicarb. Totally reasonable. That's why they get acidotic. Now, we often make the problem worse. Why? Well, problem number one, hyperchloremia. This one is on us. This one is our fault. Because again, what probably happened is you probably gave this patient eight liters of normal saline. Now their chloride is 129. Okay. I think we've mostly heard of hyperchloremic non-GAP acidosis. That should hopefully be familiar to people. But why? Why does that happen? What's going on? I think it's important that you understand this. Not just memorize that that's a thing. You really need to understand this because you're going to have to explain it to other people. And like anything else, if you tell somebody to do or not do something, and don't give them a reason, they're going to totally ignore you, and fair enough. If you really want people to do things, you have to tell them why. But before you can tell them why, you have to understand why. So let's talk about now why a chloride load will make you acidotic. There's two principles that we need to understand here. The first one is the body is really obsessed with electroneutrality within a given compartment. Really likes electroneutrality, it's its thing. The number of positively charged particles must equal the number of negatively charged particles. And it is so into electroneutrality that the body will sacrifice the pH to maintain electroneutrality. That's what the body will do. Now, what are the implications of this? Well, let's go back to this equation. Going back to this equation, 
we have this H plus here. And the second principle that we have to understand for this to make sense is the following. The concentration of protons, the concentration of H plus in the serum is determined by the disassociation degree of water. Now, there's an easier way to say that. Translated into plain English, that means functionally that the body can generate as much H plus as it wants. That's functionally what that means. Because remember, this is a reversible reaction. It goes in both directions. The body can effectively generate H+. If you put these two things together, now things get kind of interesting. Because if you put these two things together, this is what happens. Okay. Pretend that's the serum. Sodium and chloride are the major physiologic strong ions, right? Those are the main positive and negatively charged particles in your serum. Okay? What happens when you give a patient a chloride load? What happens when you give the patient a lot of chloride? Well, we now have an electroneutrality problem because we have more negatively charged particles than positively charged ones. Can your body just make some more sodium? Can it just make it out of thin air? No, of course not. If your body could do that, we would never get hyponatremic, right? Your body can't just make some more sodium, but it still needs to do something about this electroneutrality issue. What can it make? What can your body effectively generate that's positively charged? Yes, hydrogen ions. So what the body does is sacrifices the pH, to preserve electroneutrality. Now, the implications of this are really interesting. If you think about these two things together, you eventually come to the following question. What is actually the independent variable determining the serum pH? Is it the concentration of protons? Or is it the relative amount of your strong ions, your sodium and your chloride. Because we're just saying that the body can sort of change the amount of H plus it's generating in a way that's dependent on these strong ions. This is interesting because the way that I and probably you guys were all taught acid base was Henderson-Hasselbalch, very focused. It's all about the bicarbon, the H plus, and you never really talk about any of the electrolytes when I was taught acid base in that method. But Turns out they're really, really important. And there's actually a whole nother method of acid-base analysis. We're not gonna go into the details, but it's called the Stuart method. And the most important thing I think to take away from that is the importance of the strong ions, the importance of electrolytes in determining pH. And it really does make you think, what is actually the independent and dependent variables here?